Hello and welcome to episode 218 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. So how's the new year shaping up for you so far? (laughs) Yeah, me too. Today's story is from Walthamstow, East London, where those boys from East 17 were from, if you listened to that Christmas song last month. It's another story I think that's hard to comprehend actually happened. Before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Sean Parry, Minky Musky Sly Old Foxy Stoat, or Bob, Rebecca, Amanda's L, Tessa Selick, Craig Danson, Stewie Boy Gaming and Robin. Thank you all so much for your support. If you haven't done so already, please message me your mailing address so I can send you some welcome goodies. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. You must have heard of Best Fiends, right? There are over 100 million global downloads. Everyone's playing it, including me, and I reckon that you should too. Best Fiends challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's a casual game, so you can play it when you have just 15 minutes free, and you don't need internet connection either. I really enjoy the puzzles, which are challenging enough to really make me think, and I love collecting the cute characters, which help you on future levels. Best Fiends is great to play with friends and family in these times when we can't physically meet, and Best Fiends updates the game every month with new themed events and challenges, so there are always exciting new parts of the game to explore. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This episode is brought to you by Yarn. Running out of shows to binge after Christmas and the New Year? Yeah, me too. So why not check out some of the hit series on the Yarn app? Millions, yep, you heard that absolutely right. Millions have already binged some of their top series, Mystery Dog, Modern Dating and Haunted Camper. With over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must. The format is a little different than the traditional TV series, but I love that originality. Imagine bringing your favourite characters and series through text interactions right through your phone, almost making it real. Addicting, right? Download Yarn now. Tap through the most addictive and immersive stories today only on Yarn. Trust me, with over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must-play. Download Yarn for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Y-A-R-N. Download it today to watch, read and listen to all your favourite fiction stories. From steamy to horror, Yarn has it all. Okay, let's set some brief context for the story today and play our guest the month and year round. I know you love it. Bonkers from Dizzy Rascal and Van Helden was number one in the UK charts. In the US, it was Boom Boom Pow from the Black Eyed Peas in the top spot. And in the Australian album charts, Eminem was at number one with Relapse. In the news this month, Jacob Zuma was sworn in as President of South Africa. Video game Minecraft was released to the public. Air France 447 crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Brazil on a flight from Rio de Janeiro to Paris. All 228 passengers and crew were killed. 
In the UK, the Daily Telegraph obtained a full copy of MPs' expense claims and began publishing them unredacted prior to the official parliamentary publication date of the 1st of July, reigniting the MPs' expenses controversy. Several weeks later, almost 100 MPs would have announced they would not stand at the next general election, and as we know, some went to jail, but others were incredibly fortunate not to. Did you get the month and year? It was May 2009. Okay, on to today's story. It was the very early hours of Tuesday the 24th of March 2009 in Walthamstow, East London. A 59-year-old woman popped out to the local shop to top up her meter key, something that she'd done countless times before. As she walked back home, she was, as most of us normally are, lost in her own thoughts about her day and what she needed to do the next day. She reached her communal entrance to a block of flats and went inside. As she headed towards the meter cupboard to top up her electricity, she saw a man in his early 20s sitting at the bottom of the stairs. She didn't recognise the man and carried on towards their meter cupboard when the man asked her if he could use her toilet. Before she could respond, he told her he was a little high and asked her if she'd like to smoke a spliff. She was polite at first, but frankly, she could do without this when she had stuff to do. His tone changed and he warned her not to provoke him. The woman made her way back to her flat, but the man followed, and as she let herself in, he barged his way into her flat. The woman grabbed a baseball bat she kept nearby for protection, but the man grabbed it from her grasp. He then chased the now terrified woman into her bedroom, where she asked him to leave. He didn't leave. Instead, he punched her four times before raping her in her own bed. He then apologised for what he had done, before calmly walking out of her bedroom, out of the flat and down the steps, out onto the streets. In shock, the woman called an ambulance and she was taken to hospital, where doctors noted the bruising and swelling to her face. She also had an injured eye which was bleeding in the white of the eye. Partial DNA was recovered from the scene, but this was enough to be checked against the national database but there was no trace of the man who committed this dreadful attack. The woman later told how the attack meant that her home had been turned into a prison, and due to the extreme trauma she had suffered, she later had a stroke. She said, My home should have been a sanctuary in a safe place. The bedroom shared with my husband, where I was degraded in the worst way possible. The place I then had to sleep and rest, was a constant reminder of what I was subjected to. I lash out at night and have flashbacks and depressing thoughts. His decision had nothing to do with me. I'm the unfortunate poor soul that he selected. He chose me for whatever grim reason he had, and he should have to own up to that. Detectives appealed for witnesses, but there were no concrete leads to follow. They knew that a man capable of such a terrible, brutal attack was likely to strike again, and he did just that a few weeks later, on Wednesday the 22nd of April. A 46-year-old woman was out for a walk when she was approached by a man in his early 20s who said he was looking to buy some drugs. The woman agreed to take him somewhere she knew where he could buy some drugs. It was a quiet spot, 
just away from the busy main streets of Walthamstow. When they arrived, the man changed. He suddenly pulled out a knife and forced her down a deserted alleyway. The cheerful tone of before had gone, to be replaced by a threatening voice, and he told her that she had to do exactly as he told her. Terrified, she screamed, and the man reacted by punching her in the face before forcing her onto the floor and raping her. When it was over, he fled. The woman managed to make her way to a public phone box where she called the police. Forensic experts at the scene again couldn't get a full DNA profile from the woman's underwear, but there was enough for police to know it was the same man as before. Again, the devastating effect on this woman's life was clear to see, she said. I was a happy and outgoing woman. I didn't have any help from anyone. My speech was perfect. I lived alone. This unknown male viciously attacked me. So viciously, I cannot remember how he attacked me, even being raped. All I remember was waking up in hospital with family around me. It was so serious I was going to die. I didn't give up. I had to learn to eat, walk, even go out again. I couldn't go out without people around me. I felt like a child, angry. I felt like I could not even recognise myself, as I had to have my hair cut off. I did not want to see myself in the mirror. I felt I looked disgusting and ugly. Once again, detectives appealed widely for information about this second attack, but again there were no positive leads. The two attacks were truly the stuff of nightmares. A vicious rapist attacking random women on the streets of Walthamstow late at night. But detectives feared that until this man was caught, his offending would continue, and with the level of violence he had already shown, maybe next time he would not stop at rape. As feared, it wasn't long until the same man again claimed another victim. It was on Wednesday, April the 29th, when the 32-year-old woman went to the local supermarket late at night to pick up just a few bits and pieces. On her way home, she walked past St Saviour's Church, just outside the centre of Walthamstow. The next thing the woman recalled was waking up in hospital. She had to be told what had happened to her that night. It was at 1.56am when a member of the public walking past the church heard the most terrible screams and groans coming from the area of the churchyard. Almost afraid of what they may find, the passerby called the police and an ambulance. The first responder was the same paramedic who was on the scene at the first attack. They found the victim in a really, really bad way. In the cold evening, her clothing was no longer covering her body to the extent that hypothermia had set in. She also had a gaping wound to her head. The woman was rushed to hospital where her injuries were treated. Although the major injuries were a broken nose and fractured jaw, she was in such a state that she was held in the hospital for four weeks. Such was the trauma caused by the attack that it was June until she was well enough to speak about the incident. She told detectives that she could remember being approached by an Asian man who followed her into a shop on nearby Markhouse Road. At 1.30am, CCTV picked her leaving the shop, closely followed by an Asian man with bobbed hair. She clocked him on the street looking like he was drunk, 
and she had crossed to the other side of the road to avoid him, but she thought he too may have crossed and was following her. But that was where her memories of the evening ended, just before she would have reached St Saviour's Church. The DNA recovered from the scene matched the other two rapes. Again, detectives carried out door-to-door inquiries and made public appeals, but they couldn't get the breakthrough they needed. They were worried as they feared this man would continue to attack until he was caught. And the levels of violence were increasing with each assault. On the 30th of May, the rapist struck again. 35-year-old Michelle Sama Rawira was staying with her boyfriend in Walthamstow. She lived in Hainault, but she often came to visit him there. That evening, she popped out to buy some snacks at a shop in Markhouse Road, close to where the third victim had been attacked. CCTV later showed Michelle buying her items of food when a young Asian man entered the shop behind her. Shortly afterwards, she left to head back to her boyfriend's home and the man quickly followed. Michelle began walking along Queen's Road where there's a small park with a playground. It's a secluded area in a relatively busy and built-up area. At about 1.30am, members of the public heard screaming from the park, but they put it down to a couple arguing or teenagers messing around, and nobody called the police. A few hours later, as the sun was just rising, a man was walking his dog at 5.15am, and he stumbled upon Michelle's body, which was naked below the waist. He called police who arrived quickly along with an ambulance, but it was too late for Michelle. At just 35, she was pronounced dead at the scene. Michelle had been raped and strangled, and the DNA matched the man who carried out the previous three rapes. Michelle's sister, Anne, later spoke of the terrible impact of her sister's death, saying, Michelle was always so thoughtful when it came to buying gifts for anyone. My daughter still has the beautiful blanket she gave her, and she has slept with it every day up until now. One week before my daughter's first birthday, I stayed up all night making colourful paper chains for her upcoming birthday party, only to wake up the next day to find out that my baby sister had been found dead in a children's playground. Specialist murder detectives now took over the case and the pace of the investigation escalated as they knew that this man had to be caught before he murdered again. Four men were arrested for questioning within a couple of days and hopes were high of an immediate result, but all were quickly released without charge. House-to-house inquiries continued along with appeals to members of the public for any information at all. Detectives suspected that the man seen on CCTV in the shop was her murderer and so they had a really strong description which they pushed in the papers, TV and across social media. Due to all the attacks being within a small geographical area, they were certain that the man they were looking for was local to Walthamstow, and that somebody must recognise his picture. It was just a matter of ensuring that it was seen by everyone in the local area and encouraging people to come forward. Men who had a similarity to the suspect were asked to take a DNA profile to eliminate them from the inquiry. By December that year, over 1,100 men had provided swabs and almost 1,900 addresses had been visited, 
but still nothing. Detectives were frustrated as they knew that somebody had to recognise the suspect and they also knew that the longer it took to arrest him, the more chance there was that he would attack again. They turned to the true crime enthusiast's favourite show, Crime Watch, but even this brought no success. Between November the 8th and the 13th, 2010, over 60,000 posters were sent as a mail shot to local addresses in the Walthamstow area. They showed the CCTV image of the suspect, and a reward of £20,000 was offered. This finally produced what seemed to be the breakthrough they had been looking for. A local man recognised the suspect as being someone he had once employed. Their jacket worn by the suspect in the picture was unusual, and the man also linked it to the one worn by his former employee. But there was a problem. He knew that the suspect, Aman Vias, had left the country in July 2009. Detectives checked and were able to confirm that he left the UK on a one-way plane ticket to India on the 2nd of July, a month after he'd killed Michelle and just days after his appearance on Crime Watch. He'd flown the same day as he bought the ticket, suggesting that he was spooked by his appearance on national TV. But detectives had their second stroke of luck as a man who recognised Vias also employed another close member of his family. He was able to give police a water bottle that this family member had drunk from so they could test the DNA. And it was the result they'd hoped for. There was a familial link between the sample from the water bottle and Aman Vias. They now knew the identity of the man who had carried out the three rapes and had murdered Michelle. They just needed to track him down. A global manhunt was initiated to find him and bring him back to face justice. But this proved tricky as Vias hadn't just stayed in one place. In 2011, he was definitely in New Zealand, from where he went to Singapore. But from there they lost track of him. Had he realised they were onto him and maybe left by boat? Or was he somehow smuggled out across the border to Malaysia? It was uncertain but he seemed to have just disappeared. Meanwhile, Michelle's family and the three other people he had attacked tried to go back to some sort of normal life, but always hoping they'd get the call to say he'd been found. And on the 4th of July 2011, Indian authorities called detectives to say they had their man. Vias, an Indian national, had been arrested at New Delhi Airport as he tried to take an outbound flight. Extradition proceedings began immediately, but this was difficult and time-consuming. It involved over 30 hearings, as his legal team desperately fought to prevent the extradition back to the UK. It wasn't until October 4th, 2019, that Met officers met Vias in New Delhi and boarded a flight with him to London Heathrow, where he was arrested and charged. Vias became only the third person and the second Indian national to be extradited from India to the UK. Finally, they could get Vias's DNA sample from him directly and it showed that the DNA was one billion times more likely to have come from him than anyone else. Detectives now knew they had a strong case 
and just needed to persuade a jury. At his trial, the jury heard that the first attack happened when Vias was 24, living in Walthamstow and working at a dry cleaners. He was a university graduate who had previously been married and was in a steady relationship with a current girlfriend and was performing well at work in a customer-facing role when he carried out the attacks. He was of average intelligence and there were no other mitigating circumstances that could in any way have accounted for his actions. The prosecuting QC said, This campaign involved four female victims, the last of whom died in the course of the attack and literally at his hands. The defendant would go out prowling, looking for lone women on whom he could prey. His hunting ground was a relatively small area of Walthamstow, centred on Mark House Road and some of the streets running off it. Fias denied the charges of murder and rape. Sickeningly, for all her friends and family in court, he claimed that Michelle died accidentally following consensual sex. But of course the jury did not believe any of his story and he was found guilty of all charges. The judge sentenced him to life in prison, saying he would be eligible for parole after 34 years when he's almost 70, although the judge said he may never be freed. In his sentencing remarks he said, I've no doubt whatsoever, and I'm sure, that the moment you interfered with Michelle's breathing, you intended to kill her. You'd already been responsible for a series of serious assaults of increasing ferocity, and you left your previous victim for dead, not caring I'm satisfied whether she lived or died. You were willing to kill in pursuit of your sexual perversions, and in Michelle you found a victim who screamed for her life and fought back as testified by the blood on her hands and abrasions on her face. She had to be silenced, and silent she was. You continued to interfere with her breathing at a time when she must have made clear she was struggling for breath and maintained that interference until she was dead. You left her naked, exposed, and I am satisfied dead at your hands as you intended. There is no mitigation here. You have shown neither compassion nor remorse for your victims throughout your trial, putting those who were alive and could remember events through the ordeal of reliving those events, whilst you continue to protest your innocence to the bitter end, concocting ever more fanciful versions of events as you struggle to explain away the weight of the evidence against you. During the sentencing, Vias came into court flanked by three custody officers, and he briefly stopped and looked across the court before sitting down. From there, he stared pointedly at the ceiling, just fidgeting slightly on his seat. One of the victims, Michelle's sister Anna, and the parents of another victim were all in court for the sentencing, as were four members of the jury who had convicted Vias. Michelle's sister Anna spoke movingly after the trial, saying, I hope one day he will find it in his heart, if he's actually got one, to talk. I'd even be prepared to go and visit him if he ever confesses. Aman Vias has had over 11 years to come clean and admit to raping and murdering my sister, and even longer to admit to all the other crimes committed against all the other innocent victims. He's also had all this time to reflect on his own life 
and address the issues that have turned him into the monster that he is, but he didn't. Instead, he has lied and fabricated stories for his own benefit. He will never understand the way he put my mother, sisters, children, loved ones, friends and myself through. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I think it's a tough listen, isn't it? A man like Vias roaming the streets, looking for random victims to attack, is the absolute stuff of nightmares. He would never be released, of course, which is no loss to society. But we really have very, very little interest in Vias. Our thoughts go to the victims he raped, who are still living their nightmares, and also to the family and friends of Michelle, whose life was taken at just 35. I can't help thinking just how terrified she must have been as she was attacked in the early hours of that morning in that quiet playground. All she'd been doing was buying some snacks and groceries at a shop a few minutes away from her boyfriend's home. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please join us at the Facebook group. And to instantly become a better person, better looking and gain more friends, please join us at patreon.com slash UK True Crime and you can even watch the live recording of next week's show on Monday. What is there not to like? So that's all for me for this week. Just one thing, please stop talking about Crawley. It was just a blip for the mighty League United. So on that humiliating bombshell, until we speak again soon, take it easy and most of all, stay classy. Cheerio. <laughs>